Uh, let's ask God to help us uh, with his word. <clears throat> Our gracious uh, heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you uh, for your word. And we pray now uh, that we would become wise by learning the truth about you and learning the truth about ourselves as believers in Jesus. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to receive it with faith and with glad and grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. <clears throat> well, who do you think you are? Uh, it's the name of a popular show on SBS entering into its 12th season where we're told well-known Australians play detective as they go in search of their family history, claiming in the blurb that our ancestry is the foundation of who we are. Now, you may have seen the show, Who Do You Think You Are? It's a great title for a show because it's a question that fascinates us and we sense an important question. Who we think we are is fundamental to how we experience and respond to others, how we experience and respond to the world we live in, what we might expect uh, from the world. So just a, a trivial example, if we identify, say, Scottish, uh, which is probably not many of us, uh, we might see Scottish jokes as a put-down, a, a slight, for example, on our national thrift and hearing them might make us uncomfortable in the group or even hostile, but positively, when we hear the pipes, we can experience a sense of belonging, even contentment in being in a gathering of people with sensible musical tastes. And conversely, if we identify as English, the first experience might make us feel right at home and the second might make us feel like outsiders. That's trivial, isn't it? But you get the point. Who we think we are, who we know ourselves to be, affects our lives at multiple points each day, informs what we expect from and how we engage with the world. Now, there are lots of ways of answering the question, who do you think you are? People can answer it by reference to their gender and sexuality. People can answer it by reference to their family and family relationships. You know, I'm Ross's son. They can answer it by reference to their work or career. I'm a gardener, teacher and IT professional. But this morning I want to ask and answer that question as a believer in Jesus. Who can we know ourselves to be as believers in Jesus? Who does faith in Jesus teach me to think myself to be? The first nine verses of 1 Peter gives us an answer to that question. It's an answer that, as we'll see in the rest of his letter, guides how we interact with our world, with our past, with, our, with present power structures and authorities, with a critical and suspicious culture with each other. It's an answer that will shape our expectations and help us interpret how we experience the world. And wonderfully, it's an answer not found by looking in to making our feelings and desires ultimate in telling us who we are and not found by looking to our human history and relationships nor our skills and abilities. Rather, it's an answer that is a gracious gift of God to his people. 
And so the foundation of a stable and enduring identity, consciousness of which can give hope and confidence in living as followers of Jesus. I probably put it in the wrong way. Whoops, good. Thanks. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Peter is, as uh, Kirsty told us, the Apostle Jesus, the Apostle Peter, sorry, the companion of Jesus, known to us from the Gospels, the recipient of Jesus' public and private teaching, witness of his miracles and resurrection, the preacher of the first Christian sermon led by God to share the gospel with the first non-Jewish believer in Jesus, Cornelius. By the time of writing, he's had a long and faithful ministry and he is very aware of the difficulties and challenges faced by those who had, like him, become believers in followers of the Lord Jesus. And he writes to those he calls chosen, living as exiles. Now, in those two descriptions of who we are, we actually have summed up the realities that determine the believer's experience in the world that, in a sense, will explain what Peter says in the rest of his letter about how we experience and act in the world. So we are firstly, he says, chosen. Believers are believers, members of God's people by the initiative of God. It is a gracious initiative. Believers are the recipients, as you heard in verse 3, of mercy. It's because of his great mercy that he's given us new birth. In the great privileges believers possess, we are receiving what we don't deserve, not what we do. So we can't boast in ourselves, take credit in ourselves for being God's people. But it is our reality, for it is God who has brought us to belong to him by faith in Jesus. And the description chosen also catches every believer up into the Bible's big storyline. This was the way of referring to God's Old Testament people, a people who had their origin in God's choice of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Peter makes that relationship with God's Old Testament chosen people explicit in 1 Peter 2.9 where he applies to believers what God had said to Israel when he had gathered them to himself at Mount Sinai. Uh, He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are caught up into God's big storyline. Believers are chosen because of God's determination to have a people of his own, a determination seen at the beginning in the promises he made to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. And our believing in Jesus is not some accident. It's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, something that God had decided long ago he would do and is now carrying out in history. As well as take our breath away when we think of the mercy and grace that God had committed himself to before time again, a mercy and grace, think of it, that 
God knows involves his son's suffering and death. Knowing we are chosen should also tell us two things. Firstly, it's a reminder that being a believer, being who we are as believers, is not all about us. It's not about our wants, our needs, our happiness, where we're at the centre of the picture and say the church is just there for us and faith is about making life easier. No, being a believer is actually about God and his determination to have a holy people of his own. And so it's God who gets to say on what terms we belong to his people because we can only be his people on his terms. And the following verses tell us that his terms are believing in Jesus, the Jesus preached by the apostles who died for sins and rose again, a believing seen in obedience to the Lord Jesus. Oh, and secondly, being chosen according to God's foreknowledge also tells us that being a member of his people, being saved on the basis of his terms by faith in Jesus is something we can have confidence in because it is something God is determined and at work to achieve from eternity. And it's he who fits us for his presence by the sanctifying work of his spirit and it's he who guards us by his power. And the gracious initiative of God is a purposeful initiative to have a people of his own obedient to and saved by Christ. We are chosen to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Notice that we are saved not by our obedience, but for obedience, to live as Jesus' people in the world, doing all that he has taught. And in the Father's foreknowledge, we are saved by being included in the new covenant through the death of Jesus, through sprinkling with his blood. Now, that's a double illusion. In the Old Testament, people were cleansed from their skin disease, say, by the priest sprinkling the blood of a sacrificed bird. And so this is saying that we are cleansed by trusting Jesus in his death. But there's a more fundamental illusion. It's actually to Moses sprinkling the people with the blood of the sacrifice when they entered into the first covenant at at Sinai, mentioned in Exodus 24. This is how the author of Hebrews refers to that event. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet, wool and hyssop and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. God has chosen to bring his people into being to save them through the sacrifice of Jesus that inaugurates the new covenant and its reliance on this sacrifice, trusting that the Lord Jesus has died for our sins, that includes us in the people of God. Believers in Jesus are chosen, believers by God's initiative. But that initiative of God has changed our relationships to our past, our former manner of life, to the present rulers of this world, to the world itself, our society and its expectations of what we should think and do. And the next phrase brings that home. Believers are a chosen people living, it says, as exiles dispersed abroad. Now, exiles, perhaps not the best translation 
Exiles gives the sense that we were once citizens of heaven but have been somehow forced out of there, tossed out and longing to return. Well, the longing part is right, but the word is better translated as sojourners, temporary residents, people who are resident aliens in this world. In this world. And the longing is still there, but its origin is not in our past, but in God's grace to us. You see, as a consequence of God's choice, believers know themselves now to have another home, another country that we are citizens of. Before we believed, we were quite at home in this world. This is where we belonged. It was to this world we gave our loyalty and from which we took our standards. And its citizens treated us as their fellows. But by God's grace, that is no longer the case. We now belong to the heavenly country that we are journeying towards. That's where, as we'll see in verse 4, we have our inheritance. And so we know our time here is only temporary and we're not trying to become permanent residents. We're not migrants. No, we are sojourners, people who know we've got a few years here and then we're moving to our own country and belonging to that other country. Well, That's what we give our loyalty to and from where we take our standards and it is to its ruler we owe ultimate obedience, which means we will always be regarded with some suspicion by the citizens of this world. And believers are sojourners who are scattered, dispersed abroad. Now that's literally true of the first recipients of this letter. As you saw on Kirsty's map, they were dispersed through many areas of what we of what is now modern Turkey. But it continues to be true for all believers. See, we're not called to set up little enclaves to build, as it were, a Jerusalem on earth. We're sojourners and spread throughout our societies. You see, think of the images Jesus used for his followers, salt and light. Salt has its effect as it's scattered. And light by its nature is dispersed, moves out and through its surrounds. That's how we have our effect, being dispersed. Now, this is an aside, but being sojourners who are dispersed makes our temporary gatherings on Sunday, our church, even more precious, a time when we can make the customs and behaviours of our home central. Uh, Many of us, I know, are immigrants and all of us at some time in our family's history have belonged to immigrant communities. And even though as immigrants we are all determined to make our new home in this new land, still those times when we can get together with those who, in a sense, share our homeland, when we can hear our music, eat our soul-sustaining food, hear our language spoken, are precious. And as dispersed sojourners, for believers, our times of gathering are precious, where we can hear, in a sense, the language of God's place, the language of God, his word, where we can be sustained by his soul-sustaining food, where we can sing our songs of praise. They're precious. Believers are chosen sojourners. Chosen by God to be his people because he's determined to have a people of his own. This is the foundation for thinking about our engagement with the world 
and the key to how we experience the world. And that choice of God, as I've said, means that we are no longer at home in this world, but it also means that we have a sure, a certain hope of a better country, a better home. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. God's gracious choice has not only changed our relationship to the world, it's changed our future, changed our experience of death. We've been given a new life with a living hope in place of our old life with its dying hope. That's right, isn't it? In this life, in this body, all our hopes end in death. From the day we were born, our hope has been dying. And that realisation grows on us as we go through life and lose parents and then friends. And if we're married, our husband and wife, as we go through life and feel the decay of our bodies and the loss of vigour. In this life, death is all you are left with. But born again, given new life through believing the gospel, Our hope is for life, resurrection life, the life that death will never end. And it is a hope that always contains within its realisation hope for more life because it is deathless life. And we have this hope because this is the life of Jesus who in his resurrection has defeated death and lives now an immortal, a deathless life, life that will never be subject to death again. And this is a rich hope. So in verse 4, Peter uses the Old Testament term inheritance to describe what God has in store for Jesus' people. Inheritance was the word used in Numbers, Deuteronomy and Joshua to describe the land of Israel, the land of promise. In their inheritance, each Israelite had a personal portion, their own individual place of belonging. And that was to them the tangible fulfilments of God's promises, a sign of the goodness of being in the covenant. But Peter uses inheritance here to show how much better will be the fulfilment of our hope than was the fulfilment of Israel's hope in the promised land. Our inheritance is imperishable. It'll never be destroyed by war or disaster like Israel's was. It's undefiled. It'll never be tainted by our sin, become a place where God can no longer dwell with his people. It is unfading. It won't become used, soiled by our handling. It'll always come with the freshness of the morning. Its delights never stale. And it is certain. An inheritance, something you possess, have a right to expect, and this inheritance is there already, prepared already, waiting, kept in heaven for us. And heaven is a secure place. There's no power in this world that can seize or spoil our inheritance. 
And not only is our inheritance secure, but believers are secure. Verse 5, you're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We are guarded by God's power. The God who made the world with a word, who destroyed Pharaoh's army in the sea, who raised Jesus from death, death which holds the most powerful in its chains forever, that God is determined to keep and protect his people by his almighty power. And notice the way we begin in the Christian life, come first to experience our God's grace, is the way we keep enjoying his grace. It is through faith. We're guarded by God's power through faith. And that emphasises the graciousness of this wonderful, secure hope because faith is not about earning but receiving a promised gift. Our faith doesn't unlock or enlist a power that waits upon us before it acts. God's power is always at work for his people. As the psalmist says, he who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Our trusting dependence is the means by which we continue to enjoy the gracious determination of God to save us, not its cause. And so it's not start with faith and then keep God on side by what we do, our works. No, it's always by faith, by faith in his promise, in his son, that we are kept in relationship with him as we wait on him to fulfil his promise at the time of his choosing when he reveals his salvation in revealing his son Jesus in glory. It's ready. Jesus is already exalted. God is just waiting to reveal him. This is the way we live in this world, confident of our heavenly home, our inheritance, looking to the revelation of our salvation in the revealing of the glory of Jesus. Confident. You see, we know as believers that we're only here temporarily because we are passing through to something already ours, something infinitely better. You know, it's with this confidence that we should get old if God gives us years on this earth. We shouldn't grow old increasingly enmeshed in death with the death of hope, whether that shows in our being determined to live it up and use it all up now or whether that death of hope leads to us being overtaken by a deep and bitter sadness as we get old. That's not the way we should get old. Believers with a living a hope, a hope that gets stronger and stronger Well, we should show that hope as it sustains in us a life of trusting obedience to God in loving others to the end. Who does Scripture say we are? Chosen sojourners, waiting with a living hope. And while we're waiting, we are a people who know that suffering in this life is purposeful. You rejoice in this even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. So the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Suffering is universal in this life, physical, emotional, 
psychological suffering. Every great worldview grapples with it. It was the existence of suffering, for example, that is said to have launched Buddha on his path, seeking an explanation for it in a way of transcending it. But our age, modern secular people, actually have a problem in thinking about suffering. As Tim Keller writes, in the secular view, that is, in the view of those for whom this life is the only life, suffering is never seen as a meaningful part of life but only as an interruption. There's no sense or purpose to suffering and it can be a real threat to identity with the capacity to rob us of what we think makes us who we are. But suffering is different for believers in Jesus. You see, there is suffering for believers in Jesus in this life of various kinds. Later, Peter will speak of persecution as a painful trial And that's a reality for many believers. But he also writes of slaves suffering at the hands of crooked masters, of wives living with the fears associated with having a husband unsympathetic to their faith. The various trials or tests that Peter speaks of, the trials or tests that bring us grief, are not restricted to persecution. They can include the grief of loss, the grief of loneliness, the grief of sickness, especially chronic sickness, the grief of longing, say, for a loved one to turn to the Lord. Our suffering, our griefs are as varied as our varied lives. But in all our lives, they have the one purpose, to show the genuineness of our faith, for that is the one thing that is looked for in faith an enduring trust in the word of God, in the promises of God and in the God who makes them in all circumstances. Such genuine faith, says Peter, will bring honour to God whose word and promises will be revealed as worthy of all trust when Jesus returns and result in praise, glory and honour to the believer When Jesus is revealed, the praise, glory and honour of being included in salvation, the salvation of verse 5 in that day. Now Paul uses an illustration to help us see the role of our trials. He says, think of gold. Now gold's reckoned valuable because of what it can purchase. Gold, which can only purchase things of this earth and which will perish with this earth, he says, is tested tested to show it's genuine and it only has value, can only obtain those other goods if it passes the test, if it's seen to be the real deal. But faith obtains something so much greater, the inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. So should not its genuineness be shown and seen by all if it's to obtain that goal? And it is trial testing that shows the genuineness of our faith, of our trust in God, isn't it? It's easy to say you're a believer, to be convinced that God is good when everything is going well. You know, when you've got health and human love, you have plenty of liked and respected. It's easy to be a believer when, you know, doing what God says seems to promote your life. But when we lose someone we love, when we are fearful for the eternal fate of our children, 
when sickness shatters our dreams and plans and pain tests us every day, when being a believer, living obediently, moves others to slander you, leave you out, cost you, when your plans and dreams are thrown into chaos by a pandemic, will you then believe God is good and that he cares for you, that he's with you? See, genuine faith will because it's grounded in the gospel. Genuine faith keeps believing the gospel. It keeps confessing every day that Jesus died for you when you're a sinner and the Lord Jesus will raise you up on the last day to eternal glory and the Lord Jesus is with us now. And so in the pain, the confusion, the grief, the faith that keeps believing the gospel will say, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord and will give thanks and put its hope in the fulfilment of God's promises. And by that trial, your faith will be refined, a faith that comes to believe God's promise, not because you can see the blessing, see what's promised, that will come to believe God's promise just because it is his promise, the promise of the God who never breaks his word and who has given his son in love to save you. That refined, genuine faith will honour God and bring you praise, glory and honour at the last day as you enter your inheritance. Believers know our trials are purposeful. In the context of our relationship with God, refining and revealing our trust, doing God's work in our lives even if we can't see it. Now, believing our trials have a purpose, a good purpose, is very different from saying that we know why this or that happened, what particularly God is doing in my life or your life by this particular suffering, this illness or this loss. You see, if we knew that, we wouldn't have to trust God. We just have to trust our approval of the explanation, accept what's happening because it makes sense to us. But trust, simple trust, the trust of a child with his or her parent is what God looks for from us in all our trials, that we keep trusting him by trusting his promise to us in Christ. And Christ is the focus of our faith, of our believing. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Who are we? Well, believers are a people characterised by love, faith and joy. See, these verses are a reminder that we're in the same situation as those to whom this letter was first written. They'd never seen the Lord Jesus, neither could they see him now at the time the letter was written, just like us. Oh, and it's it's a reminder that even though Peter speaks of trials, and we'll come back to that throughout the letter, the present Christian life is not one of grim duty or chronic sadness, or cold calculation of future reward. 
It is a life lived in a relationship of love and trust with the living Lord Jesus that brings us joy. You see, not seen is not the same as not known. We know Jesus in his word. Oh, not seeing him now is not the same as his not being present now with his people. He is present with us by his spirit. Now, Peter will speak of why the Lord Jesus is worthy of our love and trust as he returns to the death of Jesus over and over again in this letter. But it is love and trust of Jesus that marks us out as believers. And loving and trusting the one who is worthy of our love and trust because he's loved us and died for us to give us life and conquer death in his resurrection and always lives to keep his promises. Loving and trusting him is the continuing source of our joy, for we are loved and secured in life and death. And this joy is glorious, for it anticipates the joy of heaven. As we love, trust and rejoice in Jesus, we are receiving the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Now, receiving the goal of our faith is not the cause of our joy, but the consequence of our love, our faith and joy. In our present relationship with Jesus, we start to receive a down payment of what we long for on the last day, the salvation of our souls. That salvation is already at work in us as we love, trust and rejoice in our Lord and his presence now guarantees its future fullness. Love, trust and joy even in suffering is how our reality as chosen sojourners is experienced in relationship with God through his son. How that reality will then be expressed in our relationship with the world and each other Peter will tell us in the rest of the letter. But if you're a believer in Jesus, is this how, who you know yourself to be? A chosen sojourner, a person with a sure hope, someone whose suffering has a purpose in relationship with our God, someone whose life in relationship with Jesus is characterised by love, trust and joy. This is who we are as believers in Jesus and it is good and we have this identity not by finding these things in ourselves but by the work of God and so it's a secure, stable identity, one not even death can take from us. But our confidence in that depends on our confidence in God and that means to know yourself, you must know your God. To experience life as a believer as one of love, confident faith in joy, you must know your God. Now that knowledge is woven through the whole letter, but it's worth pausing to consider what Peter tells us of our God in these verses. He is living and mighty, isn't he? He, he chooses a according to his foreknowledge. So he's a God with a plan and a purpose, a plan made known in his promises which he is active to fulfil. He gives new birth, so he's a God who has the power of life in himself, a life which he can give to others in new life. He's a God with the power to keep his people. So our God's not some dumb idol to whom we must give life by our devotion. 
He speaks and acts and saves. He carries out his purposes in the world. He is living and active in the world, living and active today. And he's gracious and merciful. He's great in mercy. All these privileges, this wonderful, enduring identity, this hope of life, he bestows on those Peter will later describe as having gone astray in their sin. And he's someone whose grace and mercy can be relied upon today. And yes, our God is Father, Son and Spirit, the one God in our salvation, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we treat the Trinity as a kind of abstraction or a deduction. Not so. The Trinity, the one God who is Father, Son and Spirit, is the God we meet in our salvation, the God who saves us. Christian experience has been Trinitarian, an experience of the one God, Father, Son and Spirit from the beginning. As trusting the Son, we are trusting God and we are brought into relationship with the Father of the Son as our Father And we receive the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, who assures us that the Father is our Father, crying Abba, Father in our heart. Father, Son and Spirit, active in our salvation from the beginning and in our experience. And knowing God as Trinity is the grounds of our confidence that the promises Jesus speaks are the promises of God, his words, the words of God, that Jesus is God keeping his promises to us. Now it's the grounds of our confidence that the work Jesus does on the cross is the work of God to save us, as he promised to his people. The grounds of our confidence that the God Jesus makes known is the true and living God, and we know him truly in his Son, for he is God revealing himself in and through himself. Oh, it's the ground of our confidence that the spirit we receive is the Spirit of God who brings us now the life of God, immortal life, and who will raise us up at the last day, growing in knowledge of the living Almighty God as Father, Son and Spirit will help you grow in conviction of his love, his might, his life. He'll help you grow in your joy, in being chosen sojourners, confident of your inheritance, confident in your God, even in trial. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, wrote John Calvin, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Knowing yourself and knowing your God informs every decision you make. And it gives believers the framework in which to interpret every experience we have. But more, it's the source of a life lived now with faith, hope and love, a life frail, mortal, sinful creatures could never obtain or imagine for themselves and it's the source of a secure identity that death cannot take away. So meditate upon what Peter says here if you're a believer in Jesus. Know yourself as God's word reveals you to be chosen, a sojourner here with no lasting residence. 
a person with a living hope, a person whose sufferings have purpose so that you live that life of love, faith and joy and meditate on the God who calls you to trust him, Father, Son and Spirit, so you live that life confidently to the end. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we pray in your mercy that you would write this word on our hearts, that you would convict us of its truth and that you would move us to thankfulness and joy for the greatness of the salvation you have called us to, you have given us in your Son. Good morning, my name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.